Amen. Put my phone down there. So, we're coming towards the end of Hebrews. Been in Hebrews quite a long time, of course. We're at the end of chapter uh, 12. Got chapter 13 to go. I may hold that off until September. By the way, for those of you who have been around longer than I have in this uh, Kingsmore-based uh, Elam church, uh, a previous elder and associate pastor of this church will be here preaching on 20th of August. Olufemi Ogunbanmu will be here preaching on the 20th of August. All right. Ooh. Honestly. <laughs> so, Femi, otherwise known as Femi. You wondered who Olufemi was. Those of you who know him well will say, oh, you mean Femi. Yeah, I mean Femi. Hopefully Margaret and the children will be here as well. So we come to the last verse of Hebrews chapter 12, which is simply this, for our God is a consuming fire. I've set aside one whole morning to deal with this great statement. I want to start by giving you some understanding of the nature and character of God, what we call the attributes of God. This is not theology class, it's not seminary. I can't give you every point, I'm not giving you scripture proofs. I just want to give you a brief overall picture of what God, through his word, tells us about himself. How do we know who God is and what he's like? By what he tells us about himself. Not by what we each individually imagine. We can set up an idol in our heart and our own imagination. We must have God show himself to us and tell us who and what he is. Here is a summary. God is eternal, infinite, omnipresent. He inhabits all time, all space. Time and space are his creatures. He made them. He is infinitely greater than the thing that he made. He has no boundaries, no measure. He is everywhere present. He is self-existent. He's self-existent and he is immutable, which means unchangeable. He's without beginning, without end. Does not need change. Has no, no appetites to be fed. He's self-existent. He always was. Before time, God was. God is Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Eternally, three in one. One God in three persons. God is omniscient, and I use that to mean both all-knowing and all-wise. In fact, the Bible says he's the only wise God. He needs no information, which is why sometimes we're kind of wasting a bit of time in our praying because we want to tell him everything he already knows <laughs> rather than ask him for what we want him to do. He already knows everything. And because he knows everything, because he's all wise, he makes no mistakes and he does not need to change his plan. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. Now, we misunderstand the word power because power in the Bible has more to do with authority than with energy. It's not the steam engine. It's not the, the, the turbo diesel. It's not the jet engine. God has authority. He only has to say something and it must happen. He is all-powerful, all-authority. Because of the points I've just made to you, and this is standard biblical theology, God is sovereign. He rules over all. Nothing escapes his focus and his purpose. He rules over absolutely everything. Sovereign, king in all his ways. God is spirit. He's not a creature. He's the creator. There are those who falsely 
deep error say that God was once a man like us but became a faith being. No! God is eternal and self-existent. He has never been anything but God, the eternal spirit. He's not finite but infinite. Yet the Son of God, the eternal, infinite, immortal Son of God became flesh, became man for us and remains man for us. But that's another subject earlier on in Hebrews. God is holy. This is the focus of our morning today. Our God is a consuming fire. God is holy. God is true. He is truth and there is no lie in him. He is righteous and upright, totally straight. Another way the scripture presents this is to say that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. The light is an image of this integrity of God. Truthful, faithful. He cannot lie. Therefore God is just based in his knowledge and his wisdom and his holiness and his truth. He is the judge of all and he will do what is absolutely just. No one will be able to say, that's not right, that's not fair, that's unjust. Every mouth will be stopped by the incredible faithful justice of God. And then lastly, I've put it last to make it point to you, God is love. His mercy and grace flow from his heart, from who he is. We could talk here about his goodness, his kindness. It's out of his love that we experience his goodness, his mercy and his grace. Now all of those things are attributes of God and we need to hold them fully in our minds and hearts. They are equally true. They are his self-revelation to us in scripture. What we must not do And what is done very often nowadays is set off one of those attributes against the others, such as when people say, but God is love and he wouldn't judge anybody. That is the liberal agenda. To pull God down from his throne, to make him less, to diminish him, to make him more like us. But the God who is love is also light and fire. Love, love, love is not in the Bible. It's a Beatles lyric. (laughs) The Bible says this, God is holy, holy, holy. There it is in Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That threefold statement is very significant. If I may give you a bit, a little bit of kind of intermediate maths here, he's, that's not just God in triple, that's God cubed. God is holy cubed, little three. Massively, incredibly, totally holy. He who fills all things, fills all things with his holiness. Above all things, he is holy. In fact, those two things, light and fire, are symbols to us of his holiness and purity. Think of the sun. You think, why did God make the cosmos the way it is? Because even that bears something in his image. The sun, stars, are balls of fire, are they not? And they generate photons, light, and and, uh, infrared heat, and and, and light, and x-rays, and all sorts of energies, and ultraviolet, and all of these things. God, because of who he is, Holy fire causes light and heat. The sun is a little bit of an image 
It gives us a bit of imagination. The more you study cosmology, the more you study stars and our own sun, the sol, you think, wow, God's given us a little, a little bit of pointer here about who he is and what he's like. Light and fire are symbols in the scriptures to us of this holiness and purity of God. His light, his truth, is an expression of his holiness, his purity. His justice is an expression of his holiness. There are more statements in scripture about the holiness of God than any other of his attributes. It's a big deal. He's the Holy One of Israel. Some people, you know, have... Oh, totally rejected the doctrine of the atonement, that is to say the vicarious substitutionary death of Christ on the cross for our sins. That God the Father put his son on the cross of Golgotha to bear away there the sin of the world. That the wrath of the Father against us was born there by Jesus. But what's going on there is those people are those who cannot and will not negotiate the holiness of God. They do not want to accept how holy and upright the Lord is. Our sin had to be brought to judgment and death, either in us or in someone for us. And Jesus offered himself in our place, the sinless one, bearing all the holy judgment of God in our place. The atonement leaves us breathless with awe towards a God, as it did earlier on this morning, thank the Lord, who is utterly merciful and at the same time utterly holy. Salvation was bought for us at the greatest cost imaginable. The suffering and death of the dear Son of God. The holiness of God was satisfied by the sacrifice of God the Son. His goodness and his holiness were reconciled in Christ. There's a huge tendency today to try to rub out bits of the Bible. This one particularly, our God is a consuming fire. To take it out of Christian thinking, along with many other statements about the nature and character of God. And to leave behind just this one little jingle, God is love. The Bible says that, but it's not the only thing that God says in in that very phrase, God is, about God. It's a deep and dangerous deception. Along with that, there are very few people today who actually want to own up and, 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 and participate in fearing God. Oh no, we don't need to fear him. That's Old Testament, isn't it? Jesus said, fear God. Fear him who... Can only destroy the body, or your body and soul into hell. Fear him, he said. That's not the devil, that's God. Jesus teaches us to fear God. But modern Christianity goes, oh no, no, that's old hat. We don't want to do that. Let's get into our verse for today. Just a little three points to begin with. The scripture says, our God is a consuming fire. It doesn't say their God was a consuming fire. This is not the God of someone else. This is not the God of the Old Testament, you know, if you can talk like that. And some people do, of course. They try to make out that the God of the New Testament is altogether different from the God of the Old Testament. No, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God who revealed himself to Moses and Isaiah. Our God, this new covenant God, this Christian God, our God. Excuse me if I get excited this morning. I've been working on this sermon for months. Our God is a consuming fire. Our God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, are together a consuming fire. Our God 
Sorry, can I do the notes up here? Our God is a consuming fire. Not was. He used to do that stuff, but he doesn't do it anymore. No, he is a consuming fire. It's it's essential to his nature. He cannot not be it. It's out of being a consuming fire, being holy, that his justice and his truth and all of these things come out. He's being true to his nature. He's not sometimes a consuming fire. He is a consuming fire. And though we have come, as we looked last week, the tale of two mountains, we've come to Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, under grace and not to Sinai, under law, our God is still that consuming fire. And then our God is a consuming fire. We're to think of an intense fire that shines with fierce light and when it burns, it burns to nothing. Let me give you a background of the history of this statement. Quickly, a bit of an Old Testament summary. Back in Exodus 3, the Lord appeared to Moses on a burning bush. The bush wasn't consumed, actually, but it was the fire of God, God's presence that was there. In Exodus 13, as the people are being delivered from Egypt under Moses, the Lord appeared to them and led Israel in a pillar of cloud by day, which was a pillar of fire by night. It is said that it was bright enough to illuminate a bit like one huge street lamp, the, the camp of Israel, a pillar of fire by night. In Exodus 19, the Lord descended, we looked at it last week, on Mount Sinai in fire. And this is what the scripture says, Exodus 24, to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. When the tabernacle was constructed and the Ark of the Covenant was put there, and the cherubim with their folded wings arched over the, 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 the uh, uh, mercy seat, Between the cherubim, over the mercy seat, the Lord appeared there as the Shekinah, which we believe to have been a burning, shining, central point of light. It burned and it shone. In Leviticus 9, when they dedicated the tabernacle of the Lord, fire came out from the presence of the Lord. It shot out from the Holy of Holies and consumed the burnt offering. Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, offered strange fire, and fire from the Lord burned them to ashes in a moment. In Numbers 11, there was a company of people complaining, led by some ringleaders, of course, in the camp of Israel, and the fire from the Lord consumed them. Again, a few chapters later, Numbers 16, another company of rebels, fire from the Lord consumed them. And after those events, we read in Deuteronomy, as they're getting ready to enter Canaan, the second reading of the law in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4.24. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. It comes five chapters later in 9.3 as well. If you go into the time of the judges, the messenger of the Lord appeared to Gideon. And when Gideon put out a meal for him, he touched it with his staff and it was consumed by fire, the, the whole meal. The messenger of the Lord appeared to Manoah and his wife to tell them about the birth of their son Samson that was going to happen. And when they, when they put an, a, a, an offering to the Lord, he said, I don't need your meal, I don't need anything, but you give an offering to the Lord. As, they, as they, the fire was lit, he ascended to heaven in the flames of the fire of the offering. During the combined kingdom of Israel and Judah, when Solomon dedicated the temple of the Lord, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings that day. And people fell down, you bet they fell down. <laughs> During the northern kingdom of Israel, Elijah's water-drenched offering and altar to the Lord 
surrounded by all those prophets of Baal who had been cutting themselves and wailing all morning, was consumed as he called to God and God sent fire from heaven. Later on, he, Elijah repeatedly called down fire from heaven to, to, to consume bands of men who were trying to arrest him and take him to the king. Scary stuff. Our God is consuming fire as a statement about the very nature of God. It describes his holiness. Now, Pentecostals and Charismatics, I don't know if you count yourself amongst them, I do, but we think we know quite a bit about the fire of God, but I fear, I'm going to tread on some corns here, that we often miss the point. We mistake the fire of God as referring to the equipping and empowering work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the scripture, in Scripture, the fire of God is a symbol of his holiness, and when we are touched by God's fire, it either cleanses us or consumes us. It is not equipping fire, it is cleansing fire. The old Salvation Army hymn written by William Booth, Send the Fire, Send the Fire, starts out really well. Thou Christ of burning, cleansing flame, send the fire. If you've got the notes, page 8 is two hymns for you. We're not talking here about the fireworks of God. God putting on something, we go, oh, wow, wow. oh, wow, that's exciting. This is not the fireworks of God. This is the very core of God. Our God is a consuming fire. It's who he is. It's not a trick he does. We cannot fully understand or imagine God's holiness, but it is imaged to us as fire and light, and it's then demonstrated in his righteousness, in his truth, in his justice, in his judgment. Let me say this very plainly to you. God hates sin. Every sin, even those sins we commit against other people, are firstly against heaven. I have sinned against heaven and against you, was the confession of the prodigal, wasn't it? He was right. Every sin is firstly against God. It comes out of a rebellion against him and rejection of him. Sin spoiled man, Adam and Eve, made and created in the image of God. And it spoiled God's creation and separates us from him. God hates sin and will one day utterly destroy it from his creation in a fiery recreation and reforming of things. That hatred and judgment of sin has a name, a label in scripture. It's called the wrath of God. Didn't Jesus bear the wrath of God on the cross? Yes, for those who are the children of God. But on those who are not believers, who reject the gospel, the wrath of God is still being heaped up to that day. It is only some understanding of God's holiness that causes us to be engaged with this wrath, to actually believe, begin to believe what he says about it. If you don't understand that he's holy and that he hates sin, because it ruins what he made for our good and his pleasure, it's spoiled it, it's ruined it then you won't negotiate the wrath of God. When the fire of God, his holiness, comes into contact with sin, it will either cleanse or consume. A person will either be burned out or burned up by his presence. He cleanses and purifies his people, his children. He condemns and punishes the wicked. I want to come to Isaiah 6. It's a crucial passage for me in talking about this this morning. Just drive straight into it. And the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah had been king for 50 years. He was all the only king that Isaiah knew. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, the real king, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. 
literally burning ones. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, cool. (laughs) Woe is me. I'm undone. Meaning, I'm a dead dude. I'm a goner. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. But one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he'd taken with the tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged or even ransomed. Another way of translating that. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. I want you to remember something. John, in John 12, tells us that the individual that Isaiah saw was Jesus. Isaiah saw the Lord Jesus seated on the throne. That's revelatory, isn't it? The prophets saw the Lord, high and lifted up, surrounded by fire, the seraphim, burning ones, burning, shining winged creatures, are guarding the presence of the Lord. The altar before the Lord is full of red hot coals. The house is filled with smoke. The place is shaken. Takes us a bit back to Sinai again, doesn't it? Yeah, you bet. I saw I got the message. Those heavenly guardians of God's presence are crying, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah's response is, I'm a dead man. I'm unclean. He knows he shouldn't be there. He's seeing the Lord in light and fire and he's not going to make out, out of there alive. Peter responded the same way when the Lord Jesus did something remarkable with that, with that great catch of fish. Simon Peter, it says in Luke, fell at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Now, oh, cool, look at that. Oh, no. This is... This is this is not just an ordinary bloke here. This is, what is he? What is he? He's God. One of the seraphim, by the will of the Lord, touches Isaiah's mouth with a burning coal and pronounces him cleansed, yes? And some Jewish scholars say that the burning coal left its mark and Isaiah had a speech impediment from that day onwards. Isaiah encountered God, the consuming fire, and was cleansed, not consumed by that encounter, and having been cleansed, he could be commissioned. He hears what seems to be the internal dialogue of the deity. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah, you know, almost says it before he's thought about it, it seems to me. He says, here I am, send me. Later, Isaiah writes about the Lord being a consuming fire. Isaiah 30, verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place. Burning is his anger, dense is his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation. His tongue is like a consuming fire. Three verses on in Isaiah 30, 30. The Lord will cause his voice of authority to be heard and the descending of his arm, like this, 
to be seen in fierce anger and in the flame of a consuming fire in cloudbursts, downpour and hailstones. And then this remarkable verse in Isaiah 33. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with consuming fire? Who among us can live with eternal, with continual burning? The question posed by the prophet there is not who is going to hell. It's who can live in the presence of God. You check it out in any good commentary, the verses about who can live when God comes in his holiness. The answer to that question is, of course, by being cleansed now rather rather than consumed then. I want to take you to the last last of the prophets in the Old Testament, Malachi. Chapter 3. Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. How many of you know Handel's Messiah? This is, this is really early on in the first, first few, few bits of Handel's Messiah. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. This prophecy is about Jesus the Messiah, the messenger of the new covenant, whom they long to see. But the messenger of Malachi is that when Messiah comes, he will refine and purify people. The refiner, smelter or purifier here heats metal in a furnace, pumping oxygen with bellows until the metal is molten. And then what happens is the impurities rise to the surface and in the old way of doing things, he skims off the impurities until it is said, I've never done this, it is said until he can see his face in the surface. He shall purify. He is like the refiner. What does fire do? It burns, cleanses, purifies. And when we're talking about this fire of God, it takes away what is of no value, what is only base and worthless, and leaves what is of real and great and true value. Now listen again to the words of John the Baptist. You may not have heard them this way before. This is is John the Baptist talking about Jesus talking to people as they come to be baptized in Jordan. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we're Jewish, you know, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. This is when you winnow grain, wheat, barley, rye, that kind of thing. And you've you've harvested it and you lay it in a big heap and you get a wind blowing through and you throw the stuff in the air. And guess what happens? The grain falls and the chaff is blown away. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn 
and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist says three, three things about fire there. Bad trees are cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And Jesus will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. They actually go together and they say the same thing. Fire there is the symbol of holy wrath and judgment. What the Lord Jesus does not cleanse, he will consume by his fire. I want you to understand what happened on the day of Pentecost. When those who heard Peter on the day of Pentecost expounding the prophecy of Joel to them. Here's the passage of Joel, I'll read it to you. Chapter 2. It will come about after these things that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on male and female servants I'll pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, from among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Peter was saying to the crowd, if Jesus is raised from the dead and he's Messiah and God and he's baptizing people with the Holy Spirit, what's he going to do next? He's going to bring fiery judgment upon his enemies. No wonder when Peter was saying these things, the crowd cried out to him, what shall we do? And after Peter replies, repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus, and given of your sins, you receive the Holy Spirit. He continued with many other words to solemnly testify and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this wicked generation. That generation who came to faith in Jesus were being saved from their sins and from a fiery judgment that was coming upon that generation. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 when the Romans invaded it, which was characterized by blood, fire and smoke. It's called in Revelation the wrath of the Lamb. But when in the upper room the Holy Spirit came upon those disciples, 120, They heard and felt a great rushing wind and saw flames of fire that separated and settled upon each one of them. They knew what that was. Every one of them was having an Isaiah experience. They were being touched by the flame of God. And in fact, if you read Acts carefully, after that it says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in unknown languages. So I am saying that we are probably not all baptised with the Holy Spirit and with fire because fire is an issue of cleansing or consuming. Yet we need the fire of God. As one, as one of those great historic hymns, many of those hymns call out, we need times of encounter with God's holiness. For if we are his children, such encounters with our Holy Father will cleanse us and not harm us. I've had an idea now for many years that the days of the, the river, I know a good brother of mine, David Campbell, runs a thing called River Camp, but here, bear with me. I have this deep feeling the days of river and stream are going to be overtaken by the days of fire before Jesus comes. Anybody want to risk an amen? amen. If we think of the work and presence of the Holy Spirit only in terms of river and stream, refreshing, resupplying and so on, But I I just deeply feel we need a time of real cleansing in the Church of Christ for him to be ready for his return. Just as with the day of Pentecost and the judgment that later came upon an unbelieving Jerusalem, there must be a fire of refining in God's household before the fire of retribution comes upon the unbelieving world. It's only right that God visits us with refining fire 
before he pours out the fire of retribution. Here it is in Peter. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That is my conviction. But it won't be fun. I've seen videos of people in, in, you know, meetings when remarkable things are happening and I don't, can't explain them. And I, if God wants to do that, that's fine. It's an extraordinary thing. Some supernatural manifestation. And people are, you know, because most of them are Americans, they're going, oh, cool. Wow. Gee. Some people think that to be in a particularly exciting meeting was, oh, we were in the fire of God today. I would disagree with that statement. When the fire of God really comes to us, we will, with Isaiah, Peter, and other godly people, be saying, whoa, not wow. To put back together what we pulled apart over some weeks here, Hebrews 12 is telling us, God disciplines us as a loving but holy Father so that we may share in his holiness. We are told to take hold of his grace and pursue that holiness, sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. How do we respond to the holiness of God? By coming to him. By coming to him. Takes us back to Hebrews 4. We are to come with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. John in his letter says that we are to, in the gospel and then the letter says, we're to come to the light. Not of people who are unbelieving and have a wickedness of heart will run from the light. But we as Christians, children of God, need to come to the light that we may be searched by it and straightened by it and corrected by it and then walk in the light by coming to him. Not running away, drawing near, drawing near. Because he is good and will do us good. But that doesn't mean he will not come to cleanse. He will not come with challenge. He will not come to purify. Then, by being cleansed. That means change. I read somewhere, just an article this week, a great phrase, some people will change the gospel rather than being changed by the gospel. There's a lot of people who want to do that. No, I prefer it this way. We can have it whatever you want, but there's only one way. That's true. They will try to change the character of God rather than being changed in character themselves. A godly person, a wise person, seeks for cleansing and renewal before God, opening their hearts before him. Do you know what? It's in the Lord's Prayer, as we call it. And forgive us our trespasses, our debts, our transgressions, our faults of this day, as we forgive those who have done stuff to us. And I'm paraphrasing. It's there in a daily discipleship prayer. We need cleansing. We need cleansing. And then we respond to the holiness of God by being commissioned, not just to go and say words, but to live a life, a whole life, a holy life. We have this command and commission, be holy for I am holy. Let me read to you something from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 16. Therefore prepare your minds for action. Be sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former appetites which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Be separated, be different, be a non-conformer. But our aim as children of God is not merely to be radical and alternative, but to be holy, set apart for him, living for his glory in all our behavior. To live a Godward life so that we increasingly bear his image, we share in his holiness. Listen, my brother and sister, we have one life. This is the real deal. How we live now prepares us for future inheritance, but also for that last day, day of judgment, encounter with the Lord. I'm going to read to you again something I read the other week when we were talking about God's discipline. 1 Corinthians 3. According to the grace of God which is given to me, says Paul, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than that one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation of Jesus with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. By the way, it doesn't mean that the gold and silver are good ideas. Alright, don't assume that. It builds something on Jesus. Each man's work will become evident. For the day will show when it is because will show it because it is revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which is built on the foundation remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so as through fire. Now the context there is, is particularly to Christian workers, leaders, in their leadership and teaching towards believers and churches. That work will be passed through the fire of God's judgment. Test of fire. And some of those works, depending on the motivation of that worker, builder, will be burned up. But it, Paul also widens the idea and speaks of a man who's built nothing of any real value in his life and faith upon the foundation of Jesus And when the last day comes, suffers loss, tested by fire, suffers loss, yet he himself is saved. Build a life that is fireproof, that will pass the test of God's holy fire. Here's a quote from a movie. I haven't seen the movie. Here's a quote from a movie. Fireproof doesn't mean that the fire will never come. It means that when the fire comes, that you'll be able to withstand it. But wait, prepare to encounter... God, who is holy, is to pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord. A holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Welcome his light and fire to examine you and cleanse you. His judgment, correction in life, because that will save you from his later and greater condemnation. Let me spell that out for you in some phrases. We now, in this life, if we're wise, receive his direction, believing that he has saved and will save us from damnation using plain words we receive his correction his discipline believing that he has saved and will save us from condemnation we even seek times of encounter with his holiness for in his children we know his fire will cleanse us and will not consume us 
We are being saved from the wrath of God. Our God is a consuming fire. And when we are touched by his holy fire, that will be as it was for Isaiah and for others, like John, I could have mentioned John in Revelation chapter 1, a cleansing and purifying encounter. We're going to break bread together in a moment. I'll pray before we do. But earlier on in prayer at the beginning, what I said as we're getting into the scriptures today, God reconciled his goodness and his holiness in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus on the cross. That is how a holy God can deal with you and put away your sin. Because he has poured out his wrath on Jesus instead. And God is at peace with you because of Jesus. God has reconciled himself to you and you to himself through the cross. That's why we do this. It really matters, folks. Not a little routine. This really matters. The awesome reality of the atonement of Jesus. Week by week we remember him, remember his body, remember his blood. But today as we've looked at this holiness of God, I don't know about you, but there's something, my heart is afraid and pulled at the same time. This part of me goes, no, and the part of me goes, yes. And I'm like that. Our Father's word to his children is come. I've only got cleansing for you. Don't tell me what it's going to cost you. You're better off without it. I'm going to burn away what is base and valueless and leave what is real and pure and of great value. Tested faith is more precious to God than gold. Than gold. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in Jesus we are accepted and beloved because your holiness has been dealt with. You have set your holiness to work in an awesome design of fixing upon Jesus the sins of the world so that we are reconciled to you through his body. Oh, Jesus, we thank you again. We worship you. And yet, Lord Jesus, you too are holy fire. It is you that Isaiah saw and fell down, the Lord of hosts, the King of kings. So when we worship you, we do not want to make a false image in our hearts of a Jesus we prefer. We want to worship the Jesus who is the real one who is every bit as holy and as true and as pure and as eternal and as omniscient and omnipotent as God the Father. We say with the declaration of Philippians 2 that Jesus Christ is God to the glory of God the Father. May you be honoured and worshipped more deeply from our hearts. May our hearts learn even more and more what it is to fear the Lord because we want to live lives that are wholesome and connected up and work together. It just adds up together to one thing. We are living for you. We're living as grateful recipients of the incredible grace of the Almighty God. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. While we break bread, we're going to play some music. If you want some